Welcome to the uh, fifth buddy sode of antibodies. Joining me today is Anthea E. Wheel, or Dr. Anthea E. Wheel. <laughs> Hello. And it's it's uh, and I don't know which day of quarantine it is. The days don't make any sense anymore. No. But <laughs> but we are back with another paper discussion, and uh, I feel like we are diving a lot deep into this in, into different parts of immunology that people some people don't even feel are so important oh yes yes definitely and the paper that we are going to discuss today is apoptosis inducing factor dependent mitochondrial function is required for t cells but not b cells function this is going to be a very interesting article from uh, the lead uh, first author sandra melesta and the corresponding author is Douglas R. Green. I I, I attended uh, a webinar by Dr. Sandra Milesta recently, where she talked about how this research would be helpful in in generating better CAR T cell therapies. I thoroughly enjoyed that presentation, and I I really wanted to discuss this paper on the podcast oh, cool. just just because how important the T cell and B cell metabolism are and how different they are. Yeah, and you know, one thing uh, that I kind of gather from this paper is that traditionally this would kind of be labeled as a cell physiology paper, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's really a unique experience for the immunology world to kind of merge amongst the two uh, because all authors actually on this paper are in the immunology department, which I think is really awesome because it shows the interdisciplinary of where the science is going these days, which is really, really useful. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I would not have thought that there would be so much metabolic uh, metabolic regulations involved in our immune system. Oh, definitely. Uh, <laughs> So right before we start talking about the paper, there are certain terminology that we should get familiar with that'll make it easier for our listeners. Assuming we don't have everybody, everybody who listens to us is an expert. Yeah. <laughs> it should be, these, these terms should make it easier for them to understand. So our first term is programmed cell death, very common word, uh, Anthea, yes. can you help us? So programmed cell death is oftentimes uh, kind of categorized as being called apoptosis. So apoptosis is programmed cell death. That means that it's intentional in the responses that it takes for the cell, right? So it's intentional mm -hmm. for the cell to undergo uh, programmed death or a systemic mechanism for the cell mm -hmm. to uh then be uh depleted yeah so it, it's a committed it's a suicide yeah <laughs> by the cell yeah instead of being killed by an external force right and let's be clear there are different ways for cells to die you know one other mm -hmm. is um necrosis which is actually more chronic for the system it's uh not as programmed it's more spontaneous uh, but apoptosis in general is where you have a programmed death of the cell so it's one to be rid of the system for good reasons too mm -hmm. and just if there's if this is i'll just add this uh as an exception 
it used to be thought that apoptosis is the final form once you once the cell goes through apoptosis it's going to be dead very soon but it turns out there was recent research shows that there is something called anastasis yeah which <laughs> yeah that means cells can go through apoptosis but if given uh, uh, sufficient I think nutrients and good conditions they can actually come back to life yeah i did read something about that too there's a few <laughs> papers actually that uh talks about this like replenishment of cells um even after getting the signal to kind of self-destruct yeah, yeah that's so cool yeah but you know what and, apoptosis while we're on the subject is very important because when you think about cells that are dysregulated you know like cancer cells uh cells that have been invaded from pathogens or um foreign material or just not working right or too old for instance um we need apoptosis to actually tell the cells hey buddy time for you to get out of here we don't want self <laughs> you know we don't want destruction towards our whole system so let's go ahead and clean it up and lots of times uh even in cancer research they look at a lot of apoptotic markers uh for these cells so it's very important yeah i, I just since we are talking about apoptosis it's something something reminds me have you have you heard that meerkats often sacrifice themselves to save their kin Hmm. That's yeah, new so to me. I, I took. I don't know. I don't know. They don't even know which course was that. But it was. Uh, it 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 was. In the course, we had uh, a term called altruism, and in in evolution, the altruism has developed in a way that allows an individual to sacrifice itself for the greater good of the population. So, so oftentimes meerkats would, when they, so there would be sentry meerkats who would be uh, outside their colonies, yeah. and they would they would signal whenever they see a predator. So that signaling draws all the attention to them, and they would be dead very soon, but the whole colony survives. Oh wow! You know, and I see, I see apoptosis something similar to that because there are cancer cells yeah. that. If they don't commit suicide, they're going to destroy the whole organism. Yeah, that's true. Or, or, or immune cells that if they don't die out in, after clearing the infection, they're going to cause pathology. Yeah, that's true. And you know, not to take it to a dark, uh, <laughs> a dark perspective, but even if you consider uh, more primitive times of human existence, you know, lots of people when they were uh, sick, there are a lot of studies that shows uh, this human relationship that the sick would isolate themselves to for the greater good of the rest of you know the population and humanity. So mm -hmm. you know we're doing that both at a, a larger organism to a more microscopic level too, right? <laughs> yeah. So it's like it's like life has a, a very common set of rules, and we just follow that on every scale. Yeah. True. Since we are talking about that, even ants, ants have something called social immunity, where they they all <laughs> pick up their uh, sick ones and leave them out of the nest, which is nasty, but oh, wow. helps them survive. Yeah, ants are pretty ruthless. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, yeah. if if you listeners ever get a chance to read anything exciting, you know, if you want a good comic book story at a very like realistic level, look up like just the socialism of ants. <laughs> yeah. Period. <laughs> oh man. Coming back to eukaryotic cells that exist in our own bodies, yeah. <laughs> or mice, what else uh, should we know about apoptosis? So apoptosis can uh, be triggered or activated in two uh, distinct ways. You can have extrinsic or, or I'm sorry, you can have 
yeah, extrinsic, extrinsic. See, there's another word that's just tongue twister. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Or you can have intrinsic apoptosis. So extrinsic apoptosis is when you have T cells that that possess fast ligands. These fast ligands on T cells then bind to fast receptors on targeted cells, and then this triggers fat proteins that activate caspases. So caspases are uh, enzymes that help to facilitate um, a lot of the um, apoptosis or execute apoptosis causing cell death. It cleaves specific substrates that propagate uh, pro-apoptotic signalings. So when these enzymes uh, are now activated, they can't be shut off easily. They're, they go into this uh, cast space cascade as they call it so another form or uh, route of apoptosis is intrinsic and that's when you have internal signals that cause apoptosis so uh, that's when you have signals within the mitochondria actually which we'll be talking about heavily today uh, a lot of yeah, yeah we'll today. be talking a lot about this today uh, but that's when you have signals within the mitochondria membrane and you have uh, markers such as BCL2 and BCLX. These two will then bind together and intertwine. And when those intertwine, they'll then bind with backs or back. Um, if they don't bind together, then you have a pro-apoptotic um, activation. So if these cells are damaged, BCL2 and BCLX, they don't bind, leaving pro-apoptotic functions of backs and back, then they activate again apoptosis. This will then um, secrete uh, cytochrome C that leaks into the cytoplasm and then it binds to APAV1 to create protein, activating again this caspase cascade. So I know that's a lot of uh, markers we kind of discussed quickly, but uh, to put it all in summary, when you have this BCL2, BCLX, and BACS complex, if the two don't merge, then it leaves room to tell the system some danger has occurred or something has mm -hmm. occurred that you need to undergo cell death. This will then again activate cytochrome C that will leak into the cytoplasm and bind to APAF1 and then further undergoing activation of this caspase cascade. Yeah, so yeah, these bad and bags, they're they're just proteins that form pores in the mitochondria and the, on right. the other side there are these there are these antagonists that are bcl2 bcl xl that prevent deporation so whoever wins yeah <laughs> that's yeah. what that's what the outcome <laughs> yeah. of our <laughs> cell will be and a lot of times when cells go through activation when they want to survive they upregulate proteins like bcl2 so that they don't, don't go through yep. intrinsic pathway of my uh mitochondrial uh, intrinsic pathway. Yeah, and for all you uh, flow cytometry experts out there too, <laughs> these are markers that uh, are highly sought out for um, the activity of apoptosis for sure. Yeah, thanks a lot for yeah. that. Yeah. So after moving after uh, apoptosis, we're going to talk uh, about this protein today called apoptosis inducing factor or AIF. This is the central point in this article that we're going to discuss today and we are going to find out a new function of this protein but so far what we know about apoptosing inducing factor is that it also comes out of mitochondria when mitochondria is permeabilized just like cytochrome c does uh, aif 
causes caspase independent uh, cell death. So the way it does it, it, it goes to the nucleus and it causes DNA damage. This DNA damage starts its own full cascade of signals that would eventually cause cell death. This is what we know about AIF's function and uh, there's a lot of literature that points to this function being an important or the primary function of AIF. However, when you delete this, when you delete this protein from the from the germline. So when you say germline, that means from uh, from a cell that's that's in the embryonic stage. Yeah. Let's say. Yeah. So when you delete it during an embryonic stage, the embryo does not develop because it turns out this protein is also important for the development of the neural tube. Yeah, very so bad. So <laughs> you would just you just think if something is so important for apoptosis, is it is apoptosis so important for the development of embryo and the embryo, or is, could there be another function? Absolutely, actually. You know, I was doing some uh, background research before discussing this paper and uh, there were there's information out there that talks about how apoptosis is a very uh, pivotal player in just the development of I, I just say baby in general you know mm -hmm. so uh, usually during this embryonic stage they have the web like fingers right before they're split and their own separate you know digits right mm -hmm. but uh, apoptosis actually plays a huge role in converting the web-like fingers into just their own digits so yes oh yeah, yeah. you don't want web it, fingers right <laughs> yeah <laughs> maybe a better swimmer <laughs> another another yeah that would be a good mutant for uh, Olympics although unethical <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, anyway uh, so this thing is known to be important for um, for apoptosis at least, and it's an embryonic lethal mutation. That means the embryo, if you induce this, if you knock it out in the an embryo, it won't develop. It will kill the embryo. And this brings me to a very interesting technique that we use to study such mutations. So if it turns out that you cannot knock it out at the embryonic stage because it's lethal, then you would need a way to knock it out either specifically inside a cell or at a later stage of life when this protein is not as much important. So the way you do this kind of knockout, this would be called an inducible knockout. Is There are many ways, but one of the ways that they have done in this paper is using the system called the ROSA26 CREELOX uh, system. So first, let me just tell you what's a CREELOX system. CRE recombinase is an enzyme that has the ability to cut DNA and repaste it However, Cree recombinase, it has a very specific site where it cuts the DNA and the site is called LOXP. LOXP is uh, a several nucleotides log and the Cree recombinase can recognize it. Actually, Cree recombinase was isolated from a bacteriophage and yep. it's, it comes under the class of integrase enzymes. These integrases are also pre present in retroviruses. So overall, when you have an enzyme that can target, that can very specifically cut out sequences uh, from the DNA, you can use it to create knockouts. For example, if you want to remove AIF, you can flank AIF. So when I say flank, that means on both the sides, you will put these LOXP sequences. It is slightly more complicated because the orientation of LOXP also affects what kind of, what uh, kind of, uh, 
activity will be done by recombination. But for now, let's just say if both log speeds are in the same orientation, that means they're facing the same way, the Cree recombination is going to cut the site uh, from log speeds. That means our AIF has also been removed and now it will join the two broken strands. This way you create a, a knockout model. However, we still want an inducible knockout model. We don't want this to be done when the the organism is at the embryonic stage because it turns out it's lethal mutation. And here comes an interesting, a very interesting model called the estrogen receptor Cree system. In this, you have the Cree, the uh, Cree recombinase attached to an estrogen receptor as a fusion protein. This is a fusion protein that has both the proteins, the, the estrogen receptor and Cree recombinase. Estrogen receptor, by the way, remember estrogen receptor is a receptor for estrogen, and this is a very specific estrogen receptor that does not bind to regular estrogen, but binds to a slight derivative of estrogen, which is called uh, hydroxy for tamoxifen. So this would be very specific for tamoxifen. So the way this system works is, when you add, so do you have this mouse that has lock speed sites flanking the AIF, and and the, this mouse also uh, makes an estrogen receptor, a mutant estrogen receptor that is fused with the CRE recombinase. When you treat this mice with tamoxifen, the tamoxifen is going to go inside the cell. Remember tamoxifen and estrogen, they both are steroid hormones. They can easily pass through the cell membrane. The receptors are actually present inside the cell instead of being on the surface of the cell. When the tamoxifen binds to this mutant estrogen receptor, it's going to go inside the nucleus. And when it goes inside the nucleus, now the Cree recombinase can perform its function. The Cree recombinase cannot perform its function while it's outside the nucleus. So this way we are regulating when the Cree recombinase works. Another problem is we want this to happen in all of the cells. So how do you do that? And for that, there's another interesting thing called call this Rosa 26 locus. This is, uh, this is a locus in the mouse genome that was found by accident that like a lot of things <laughs> are found in science. Yeah, serendipity. <laughs> yeah. So Rosa 26 is a locus that is constitutively activated in all our cells. Remember, our cells have differentiated, they are differentiated and they have very limited set of genes that are active in them but somehow this ROSA26 seems to be activated in all the cells. So when you put the uh, estrogen receptor Cree uh, mutant downstream of this ROSA26 locus or within the lo locus, it's going to be expressed in all the cells. And when you add tamoxifen, uh, when you give this mouse tamoxifen, it's going to uh, remove AIF in this case from all of our cells and not just a few cells. So it's a pretty cool system. It is. And yeah, it's a pretty cool system. So that's how you selectively induce the knockout at a later stage of life instead of having, so, so that you don't have to deal with the uh, embryonic lethality. 
Yeah, it's like an on and off switch, right? Yeah. You know, so even if you think about a lot of autoimmune diseases, we're not technically born with autoimmune diseases, but there are onsets for mm -hmm. signs of diseases, you know, or of the disease. So it's kind of like flipping the switch on to say at adolescent years, you know, those who have type 1 diabetes will develop it at such and such time. So yeah, it's, it's pretty, you know, realistic to how human disease kind of works too, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I really like the system. It's it's so convenient. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and and right right after this, since uh, since we are talking about the system, there is a known mutation called Harlequin mutation, uh, <laughs> which has. Oh gosh. And uh, Anthea, do you want to talk about Harlequin mutation? You know this this so. In terms of humans having uh, Harlequin mutation. Uh, in humans, neonatal babies, right, with this Harlequin mutation actually have severe skin conditions where it makes it hypersensitive. Like whenever you get a chance to look it up, I advise everyone to uh, kind of just do some background uh, research on that disease. It's really an underappreciated area. It's a rare disease, but I think it also is telling of a lot of skin conditions um, in general. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, the, the reason we are talking about Harlequin mutation here is that this mutation causes about 80% loss of this AIF protein. So this the if, if a mouse has this mutation, it's a very good model to study what happens when you have reduced expression of AIF, which you would call a hypomorph, yeah. because it has a, a, a reduced expression, but it's not a complete knockout, it still has residual expression. And it turns out uh, we have a lot of symptoms or yeah, there's a lot of key things that happen in these mice. For example, they have reduced T-cell counts. They are also slightly resistant to apoptosis. So in this paper, at, at, some, at some times, this Harlequin mutation is used as a reference just to uh, compare. Yeah. So that we have talked about AIF briefly, we know uh, we have told you what it does or what we know about it uh, in a broad aspect. Let's move on to the next term, which is ECAR or extracellular acidification rate. Let's go back to what happens in glycolysis. When when you when we have glycolysis, there are a lot of acidic intermediates formed, and there's often lactic acid formed. These acidic intermediates, they cause an increase in the cellular, I mean, a decrease in the cellular pH. That's what we are measuring. Extracellular, I mean, extra, uh, outside the cell. So we are measuring the extracellular acidification rate as a proxy to find out how much glycolysis the cell is going through. Of course, there could be there, there are certain other pathways as well that cause this, but most of the ECAR or extracellular acidification rate can be attributed to glycolysis. So this is a technique that's used to measure the intensity of glycolysis. Yeah, and just to put it in context a little bit more, um, when we think about the generation of energy in general, right? Lots of times um, those in basic science think about the mitochondria uh, as far as this <clears throat> energy or this ATP um, 
type of machine, but we also have non-mitochondria uh, metabolism for ATP, which is through gly- glycolysis, as Jatin said. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So with that, we let's move into electron transport system. A very quick introduction to what electron transport system is. Even though it's it's taught in high school, but <laughs> we let's. I know yeah. a lot of people don't remember this. Yeah, I, and understandably so because there's a lot of players in uh, the electron transport chain. Seriously, like I had to kind of brush up on it myself. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the electron transport chain or the ETC is actually broken down into four different complexes, right? And they're all labeled um, numerically in Roman numerals, right? So it's complex one, two, three, and four. Um, all these complexes are actually embedded differently in the inner membrane um, of the mitochondria. Um, it also plays a role in shuttling electrons from the NADH or uh, the FADH2, which ultimately again produces this ATP energy through aerobic respiration. So one thing we want to keep in mind too is that complex two is the only complex that doesn't play a uh, direct role in the transfer of electrons, but um, they are uh, intermediates for complex one, three, and four. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll just I'll just make a small change to what you said about embedded uh, being embedded. Only complex two is not embedded in the intermembrane space because okay. complex two is actually a these the succinate dehydrogenase that's a part of dca cycle yes 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 yeah yeah that's correct yeah so so (laughs) sometimes it's easier to make it in general than uh (laughs) yeah you're you're right you're you're, you're right i i just i i I know somebody is going to email us telling that hey you made a mistake (laughs) oh yeah yeah thanks for that make sure you snip that out (laughs) (laughs) but yeah anyway and there's complex five which is the atp synthase itself that eventually uses the proton pumps, the, all the proton pumps that have transferred protons out, it's going to use that proton gradient to make ATP. And that's how right. uh, the electron transport system works. Now, to measure the... So, by the way, there is also, in the end, at the end of the electron transport chain, there is oxygen, the terminal oxygen, that's going to be... Uh, that's going to be accepting a terminal electrons right so so you have an oxygen reduction which makes water from oxygen yes so the uh oxygen is going from undergo reactions where the electrons are lost to another yeah okay yes so so that means when you have electron transport chain going you have a reduction in oxygen and you because it's converted to water and that's one way how we measure uh, uh, oxidative phosphorylation or uh, mitochondrial respiration is that we measure the amount of oxygen in the cell so as you have as you have or we measure the oxygen consumption rate as you have an increased oxygen consumption rate that means the cell is going through rapid mitochondrial respiration if you have a reduced oxygen consumption rate that means the cell is not going through rapid mitochondrial respiration rate this thing is called ocr ocr com- measures mitochondrial respiration in comparison to ecar which i previously explained ecar measures glycolysis rate who 
that was yeah. a lot of that was a lot of uh, terminology <laughs> correct and i got a quick fact for you uh jatin too since mm-hmm. i know you're uh very interested in cancer research mm-hmm. uh but when we talk about this paper and how it plays a heavy role in mitochondrial metabolism. Uh, the mitochondria not only plays a role in the energy metabolism, but it also plays a role in cell cycle, right? In the cell cycle regulation, uh, such as apoptosis. So when you think about cancer cells, cancer cells are known to reprogram their metabolism using different strategies to meet energy and anabolic needs anabolic needs why can't i say that word it, it, it's fine there are just some words that are not supposed to be said <laughs> great <laughs> okay different strategies to meet energy and anabolic needs so the mitochondria is a target oftentimes for anti-cancer therapy mm-hmm. oh yeah so that yeah that makes sense also uh it, it turns out that a lot of cancer cells do not use mitochondrial as respiration as much and they rely on the glycolytic glycolysis pathway yeah. so that they get because glycolysis it's a it's anabolic it, it's an anabolic pathway makes it very easy for cells to divide that's the whole purpose for cancer cells yeah they just want to divide and divide yeah and i've even read somewhere that uh each individual cancer tissue has a completely different (laughs) metabolic pathway and way right so it's like even if you choose one cancer another cancer type may differ from that as well too so really (laughs) interesting stuff that that's so cool man but yeah uh now finally coming back to our paper uh anthea are you ready to get into the results I'm ready to tan. This is exciting. It's going to be a great read. So let's start. Okay. So to start, this paper goes into more details just about kind of the experimental design and how the defects uh, that come with the loss of AIF and fibroblast, mouse embryotic fibroblast that is, mm-hmm. uh, and that it can be reversed by rescuing complex one function. So remember again, through the electron uh, transport chain process, you have these four different complexes with the fifth being this ATP pump, right? Mm-hmm. So complex one, um, in initiation is what's going to set off this chain of events. Mm-hmm. So the paper kind of dives deep into just the strategies uh, as far as uh, knocking out this gene as you talked previously about this AIF deletion. But they did it in uh, a three-week time span, right? So they looked at vehicle, which will have no... um, no activation or no deletion rather of AIF and you have with the removal of AIF and uh, it shows that in this time span of one to two weeks that you have complete and total deletion uh, Mm -hmm. of AIF with everything else in this kind of electron transport chain complex uh, being present except for complex one right which is crazy so let's say you remove AIF but the only thing that's being affected is this complex one. So that's Mm -hmm. absent as well. One thing I noticed too, is that at three weeks, um, you kind of are regaining that expression of AIF, right? Is that what you kind of can tell with that too, Jatin? Yeah, it's somewhat uh, regaining, although uh, not not to the full potential. Not fully, fully, but yeah, it's it's somewhat regaining. So there's probably, so that's, 
I think they also mentioned in the paper that there is some compensatory mechanism uh, that the cell is using. But it's but we can still say that AIF is primarily important for the expression of complex one. Yeah. So also I want us to keep in mind uh, this time kinetics too with uh, complete removal of AIF as they use the same strategies throughout the experiments mm -hmm. because uh, we want to make sure that at least these the rest of the experiments are aligned with that one to two week uh, marker right mm -hmm. yeah oh yeah also they used so the way they removed uh, the they removed the uh, AIF gene from the from the cell line is using the same tamoxifen inducible yep. Rosa twenty six Cree ER uh, system, where AIF was flocked and uh, tamoxifen was used to re induce the re removal using the uh, estrogen receptor and Cree. Also, this is a mouse embryonic fibroblast which has been immortalized by uh, a virus, a polyoma virus called SV forty which I believe is a double-standard DNA virus and it, it can, yeah, you can, you can, so I, I'm, I'm pretty, I, I'm pretty interested in this virology field. Lately, I've been taking a course. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's pretty interesting. So that you can use viruses to immortalize cell lines and this is one such cell line. So we see, we see that the removal, as you said, it, uh, it, decrease the expression of complex one, three, and four, but more towards expression uh, complex one. Yep. Then what happens to, so if you have removal of complex one, you would expect a reduction in OCR, which is corresponding to mitochondrial respiration. And do we see that? Yep, and you have increase in uh, ECAR. Okay, yes. So it, in my opinion, that's an, uh, uh, that should be a compensatory mechanism from the cell, right? Yep, yep. So this is a good sign of this switch between oxphos and glycolysis, right? Mm -hmm. So it's utilizing mitochondrial um, activation or activity, rather, of this energy pump. So that's a good sign that it's specific towards what, what the beginning questions were. Yeah. So if we, so let's say if, if I find that this mutation causes uh, a reduction in complex one activity and an increase in OCR, how can I figure out if complex one is indeed how it's working? Let's give it something that's similar to complex one, uh, ectopically. So when I say ectopically, that means it's, it's being given uh, as an outside source. In this paper, they are they are making the cells express a, a homologue uh, called NDI. Uh, that's NADPH dehydrogenase, uh, isolated from yeast, I believe. Is it yeast? Yep. Yeah. So uh, complex one, it it's also a, uh, it also has NADPH dehydrogenase activity because all the NADH that uh, comes into the inter uh, comes into the comes from the TCA cycle is uh, the electrons are extracted from NADH and transferred to the other complexes. Complex one is the first uh, complex that starts taking out electrons from NADH. So if we have reduced expression of complex one and we give these cells a topic, so uh, NADH dehydrogenase, should that rescue these cells or should that uh, make things better? And how does that, what, what happens then? Is the OCR and ECAR getting better yeah it, it is it is so o the OCR is somewhat getting better not exactly 
uh, and the e-car is definitely going back to normal. That's what we get from this uh, from this uh, edition. In the end, we can we can conclude that one of the act one of the important activities of AIF is the uh, is the, is maintaining the expression of complex one because when the expression of complex one is lost, we can make up for it by adding an exogenous or ectopic uh, NDI. Uh, NADHD hydrogenase. It's very difficult to keep up with these two words. Should I keep? Should I say? I'll just say NDI, and I yeah. hope people understand. This is the complex yeah. one, uh, similar protein. Yeah, I think that works. Okay. So, NDI one expression does not reverse complex one expression, but it rescues the metabolism in the cell. That's good enough proof. Yeah, I think so. So next, uh, they wanted to look more at this AIF being required for tissue homeostasis. And like any good experiment, you want to validate uh, the loss of gene function uh, effects on the mice, right? So when they knocked out this AIF, they saw that they had significant decrease in weight and uh, a significant higher mortality uh, or survival percentage in these AIF knockout mice. Additionally with that, uh, going to the exact tissues, they uh, dissected the cecum, the heart, liver, small intestines, skeletal muscles, spleen, and thymus. And uh, for overall and general uh, purposes, they had heavy infiltration. They were higher uh, distorted. Um, this heart was actually smaller, but contrary to kind of what was published in the literature, the skeletal muscles, they didn't see much uh, observed there mm -hmm. of this wasting. But in general, the mouse with AIF knockout had uh, this increased wasting effect as they uh, have coined the term. Yeah, and I'll just add something here. They even, uh, they, they wanted to know if it's because of defects in apoptosis. So they also generated simultaneous knockouts in BAD and BAK, which are pro, uh, BACs and BAK, which are pro-apoptotic factors. And it, it happened that even when you remove these two proteins so that there is reduced apoptosis, there was still pathology. So what they're saying is that this pathology that we're seeing due to AIF knockout is likely not because of um, reduced uh, apopt due to apoptosis. So next, uh, they wanted to see if, if, when we, if when you transfer the hematopoietic stem cells um, from uh, in a, in a RAG1 knockout mouse. A RAG1 knockout mouse is a severe, severely immunocompromised mouse. It has no T and B cells of its own, so it does not reject any any foreign cells at all. It's a good model but for adopted transfers. In this experiment, they are transferring. They want to, first. They want to know if uh, there is any intrinsic defect inside the hematopoietic stem cells that are. Uh, defective in AIF. The way you do it, you transfer these cells, these hematopoietic stem cells, into a whole, into an acceptor animal like this RAG1 knockout, which will have functional AIF in all of its cells, but these hematopoietic stem cells themselves will not have the AIF. So this way you can figure out if the defect in AIF within the hematopoietic stem cells is causing any abnormalities versus a defect in AIF in any other cell that's contributing. 
So I think that is that clear? Is that am I making That's sense? That's clear. Yeah. That's clear. And here's where the immunology comes in at because they actually saw a significant decrease in hematopoietic stem cells uh, as compared to its wild type. So this is kind of where it gets tricky because at the beginning, remember, we saw that there were not really huge effects with overall and general cells, mm -hmm. but when we look more specifically, uh, these hematopoietic stem cells are really being um, affected by this. AIF loss. Yeah, it turns out that uh, compared to wild type hematopoietic stem cells that were transferred to these mice, while they were able to generate granulocytes, B cells, and T cells just normally, these AIF knockout hematopoietic stem cells do not generate their their differentiated uh, counterparts as much. In fact, there is very few granulocytes. There is very few T cells. And there is also a reduction in B cells, although a very important point to note here, the T cells were affected a lot more than the B cells. A lot more, a lot more. And that's kind of something they saw earlier on. So it's kind of interesting though, Jatin, you know, when we take it back to the lab setting, um, you know, sometimes we just kind of run across data that may not be significant now, but later on it makes a whole lot more sense, right? <laughs> so yeah. I wonder I wonder what came first, the chicken or the egg with them, right? So was it something that they saw specifically in T cells or uh, these lymphocytes versus other cell types? Mm -hmm. So I, I wonder how that happened. That's, that's actually pretty cool. Yeah, and so they also saw a reduction in hyperopoic stem cells, as you said. So now you want to ask a question, is it a defect in T-cell, I mean the AIF knockout in T-cells, is that the reason or AIF knockout in the hematopoietic stem cells which are the parent cells for all of these? So right. Where is it AIF required? Is it in the, hemato in the stem cell portion or is it in the terminal uh, differentiated portion that is causing this reduction? So that's exactly what they do in the next result. Yeah. Next, they are so they pick up with B cells first, um, and they they try to make targeted ablation of AIF in B cells only. So in this case, you have a Cree system. This time, this Cree is uh, attached is downstream of the CD19 promoter. CD19 is a B cell specific. Uh, receptor is a core receptor with the B cell receptor and any cell that expresses CD19 is going to also it's also going to express CRE this CRE will knock out AIF so that's how this system is going to work only when the cell expresses CD19 it will knock out AIF so you have achieved a CD19 specific AIF knockout yeah and with that, they saw no differences actually uh, in cells, uh, in, in these B cells. Yeah. So they saw no difference. That's right. And also if you compare that with the Harlequin phenotype, I mean, it's a hypomorph of AIF that also does not have B cells. I mean, it does not have any effect on B cells. So it makes sense, right? Correct. Correct. So, and one so, thing to point mm -hmm. out too, I'm sorry for uh, all of the, you know, beginners in immunology, when you're looking at um, certain cell types of the immune system, it's important for the organs to be specific towards 
specific cell types, if that makes sense. So when you think about B cells, you're gonna find a lot of B cells in the spleen. Why? Because the spleen helps to filter the blood, which we have lots of antibodies there. So you're gonna find a lot of B cells in the spleen and a lot of B cells in the bone marrow because that's where they mature. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, that's right. Also, this answers our previous question about the hematopoietic stem cells. When you remove hematopoietic stem cells, you saw reduction in B cells. How, I mean, when you remove AIF and HSCs, you saw reduction in B cells. However, when you remove AIF and B cells, there is no reduction. That means it was probably because of HSCs inability to make B cells, right? Correct, correct. Okay, also we saw similar changes as we saw in the fibroblast cell line. These B cells do lose complex one, three, and four. However, yep. there is no change in ECR and OCR. And B cells all, already have a very low uh, basal OCR. So they don't have a lot of uh, OCR to begin with. They even checked if these B cells are properly functional or not. So they treated them with LPS and they they, they, they used an OVA specific antibody model where they immunized them with ovalbumin and see if these B cells are able to produce enough ovalbumin. And it turns out these B cells are not defective. It's not like they are not functioning properly. They are functioning properly which is pretty interesting. So eventually you come to a conclusion that B cells don't need the expression of mitochondrial complex 134 for their development and functionality. That is so interesting. You wouldn't expect yeah. this, right? You, if you, pretty if, interesting. Mm -hmm. if, you, if you were looking at it for the first time, you would think that probably all the cells in our body require <laughs> mitochondrial yeah, respiration. Yeah, yeah, pretty interesting. But you know, when we go more into uh, how the T cells are being affected, remember again the, that the T cells actually possess that FAST ligand, right? Mm -hmm. So it's going to bind to the FAST uh, receptors of the targeted cells for apoptosis. So okay. just keep that in mind as well. Yeah. So yeah, th so now they already know that the B cells are B cell intrinsic defect in AIF is not affecting their development. Now we move on to T cells. The way it's going to be different for T cells because even if we look before to our to our hematopoietic stem cell transfer experiment, we saw a much more dramatic decrease in T cells that time. And also, if I have not mentioned it already, the Harlequin uh, mutant mice, which are have a AIF hypomorph, they also have reduced T cells. So first thing, first step, we have to generate a T cell specific knockout of AIF. So what are they using it? What are they using for specific knockout? They're using the same methods uh, as earlier with the tamoxifilin. Mm-hmm. Oh, is it? Okay. But yeah, anyway, they're using, they're using a Crelock system, but instead of CD19, which is B-cell specific, they're using a T-cell, a, a TCR-associated uh, kinase called LIK, L-C-K. LCK is only expressed in T cells, not uh, up to my knowledge, not expressed in any other cells. So when the T cell starts making LCK, it also starts making Cre recombinase, which is going to cut out the AIF. This way you generate a T cell specific knockout. Oh no, you know, I just realized it's not the uh, tamoxifen induced model. It throws me off when it says uh, T-A-I-F-K-O. <laughs> yeah, it's just T-cell uh, AF knockout. That's right. So it's it's a it's a uh, knockout in all the T-cells and not an inducible Correct. knockout. Correct, right. So similar to what we have seen before, 
we see a reduction in complex 1, 3, and 4 in T cells. That's also what we saw in B cells and the fibroblast cell line. It turned out in the B cells, they don't care as much. But in, in T cells, they do care about these, uh, these complexes. After the T cell knockout, after the T cell specific knockout of AIF, we find that while these T cells have same basal OCR, basal OCR is one resting T cells, uh, what kind of uh, oxygen consumption they have in their resting stage, it turns out they have a much lower maximal, maximum uh, OCR. So maximum OCR is it's, it's, there is a complicated, not a complicated method to detect it, but it's just, it's, I think it will be too much for this podcast. So let's just say when you find out what's the maximum amount of uh, ATP generation that this, uh, or OCR that these T cells can go for, they have about half the maximal capacity than wild types. That means in case they are required to make, uh, upregulate their uh, mitochondrial respiration, they cannot do that. It yeah. also turns out that they are making a lot less ATP compared to the wild types, um, which is is important. And just throwing in there, it it looks like the CD8 positive T cells are much more affected by the CD4 T cells. Yeah, which actually is pretty interesting uh, because CD4 positive T cells we know are helper T cells, CD8 positive T cells are cytotoxic T cells. But uh, CD4 positive T cells rely heavily on the assistance of other cells, mm-hmm. right? So, uh, and it also plays a heavy role in a lot of uh, autoimmune diseases and regulatory T cells, so dampening the system. So, this is a pretty interesting area to kind of look at more. Yeah. So, but you still can ask a question is it something in the T cells or is there a defect in the thymocytes? Thymocytes are the immature T cells right while they're developing, could it be a defect in thymocytes that's causing this? The answer is actually no. (laughs) So interesting enough, uh, it does affect the survival and the functions of these T cells, but not the development. So it has to be some type of mediation between start and finish or start and acting out function and finishing, right? So Mm -hmm. uh, here the paper is showing that there aren't any real differences between uh, the number of thymocytes um, as well as these um, different CD4 and CD8 expressions with this um, knockout as well. Yeah. Next, so they also, they actually also transferred these uh, knockout T cells to to the uh, rag one mice, uh, rag one mice, as I said, they do not have their own T and B cells, which means they are lymphopenic. Lymphopenia is the state of having a very low count of lymphocytes, and it's known to induce an ex- expansion of T cells. So if you uh, if you transfer these uh, normal uh, normal T cells, not normal as in a T cells from another mouse into these rag one knockout T cells. Uh, knockout bone marrow when these newly transferred t-cells detect that there is not many t-cells around them they go through homeostatic proliferation and it turns out these aif knockout t-cells are not very good at homeostatic proliferation not at all (laughs) they they divide a lot less than wild type aif containing t-cells and it, it makes sense you do require i mean for division even though normally glycolysis is mostly uh, 
attribute it to higher proliferation, you still require some kind of uh, oxidative phosphorylation and mitochondrial respiration for division. So maybe wild-type T-cells who have both of these pathways functional are doing much better than these AIF knockout T-cells. Yeah, it definitely seems that way. Eventually, they come to the meat of this paper, which is guiding the whole uh, title. That is, B-cells depend on glycolysis, while T-cells depend on oxidative phosphorylation to fulfill their energetic demands. And I'll say it's, it depends. I, I'm, I'm sure not all T-cells depend on oxidative phosphorylation, but if you look at T-cells under homeostatic conditions, under non-inflammatory conditions, it is true. Next, if we are assuming that the AIF knockout in these T-cells is affecting the complex one activity, and that's the reason why these T-cells are not working, how about if we give them ectopic NDI1, which remember was an NADHP hydrogenase, which substitutes some more substitutes for complex one activity. And for comparison, we also give them ectopic AIF. And we see if these T-cells are getting back to normal. So in this case, we have these T-cells that have AIF knockout, but they have been made to ectopically express NDI1 and AIF or AIF, uh, ectopic AIF. And we take these T-cells and transfer them into a RAG1 uh, deficient mouse, which would not have its own uh, lymphocytes and will be in a state of lymphopenia. In the previous experiment, we saw, we saw that AIF knockout uh, T-cells do not, they do not expand as much as wild-type T-cells. However, in this case, we see that actually the T-cells are, are expanding much better than complete AIF knockouts. We see that CD4 T-cells are expanding pretty good with addition of exogenous AIF and somewhat better with the addition of NDI. The CD8 T-cells do not expand any better with NDI, but they expand much better with exogenous AIF. So what it tells us is, first, AIF probably has a very unique role in CD8 positive T-cells yep. compared to CD4 positive T-cells. And it also tells us that the complex one activity, which is restored by an NDI, is not everything that you need to restore these t-cells right so there's something else at play that we don't know about yeah yeah and a lot of other disease models show that uh the cd4 cd8 paradigm actually mechanistically works differently too right when going awry or dysregulated so it's not just as clean cut as we think um and here this paper it shows a lot uh, about this complex one activity being sufficient for the t-cells uh to proliferate but in absence of AIF that it kind of has different effects with the CD4 and CD8 expression in sales too. Yeah, and I, I think there's a, there's a lot of information. We did not discuss about half of the experiments, oh, yeah. experiments yeah. that were done in this <laughs> just for the sake of uh, saving time and not yeah. con confusing our listeners, but it's a very detailed study and <laughs> that completely... Yeah. Yeah, it's it's. Um, I'm I'm just wondering how many years it took to get all of this data and how many people are there. 
<laughs> I'm wondering that too. You know, when you think about doing studies that actually will be translated to how it can affect human life, you really have to go into specific details, you know, and this paper is a great example of kind of uh, flipping, twisting, turning all aspects of disease irregularity, right? Or even not just disease, because it doesn't really focus uh, heavy on disease, but at least how cells uh, work. Right. So my background came a lot with uh, cell signaling. And when I read a paper like this with cell physiology, it kind of is like <laughs> so much more intricate. Yeah. And I, I love this paper. But yeah, that, yeah. I, I think that should be a good time to end the discussion. And just can we quickly summarize everything that we said? So assuming somebody slept in the first one hour or 15 hours that we were discussing <laughs> this, <laughs> it, what if they just wake up right now? what did they miss okay so to uh summarize kind of some of the take-home points uh a few things we learned was that AIF is a primary, uh, has a primary role in uh, mitochondrial respiration uh, instead of cell death, which originally, you know, thinking about apoptosis inducing factor, uh, we would think it had more of a role in uh, programmed cell death, but it actually has more of a role in mitochondrial respiration. Uh, it also promotes complex one expression and activity, which is pretty unique. Uh, B cells do not require mitochondrial respiration for normal functioning, but T cells do, right? So we saw that they had a lot of effects on hematopoietic stem cells, granulocytes, B cells, and T cells, but it primarily affected uh, T cells, um, at least for homeostatic proliferation. Mm -hmm. Also, CD8 positive T cells rely on mitochondrial respiration a lot more than CD4 positive T cells. So we know CD4 positive T cells and CD po positive 8 T cells uh, differ, but uh, this is telling more in depth ways that uh, it actually works differently. Yeah. Um, so it, it first we we also know that the cytotoxic T cells have a slightly different metabolism than the helper T cells, right? Yep. Also, in this point where we where the paper says that T cells require uh, oxidative phosphorylation, I'll put a slight asterisk in there. <laughs> Because mm -hmm. because they are different kind of T cells depend on different at to a different extent. I know yeah. I know regulatory T cells depend heavily on oxidative phosphorylation, while right. uh, effector T cells are more tend to be more glycolytic. But that would be right. I, I would assume that would be in an act in an inflammatory environment under homeostasis where you don't have any infection. Probably most of the cells are. In a, in a somewhat resting condition, not very activated, and in that case, it looks like mitochondrial respiration plays a huge role. Correct. Correct. And Anthea, thanks a lot. That sums it up properly. Yeah, I had fun with this. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks for challenging uh, my immunology. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this was this was actually a very challenging paper. A lot different from what I work on and from oh, what, yeah. what my lab does. And I'm sure it also is very different from what you have worked on in the past. Oh, definitely, definitely <laughs> so. <laughs> And everybody who's listening to this, thanks a lot for being here. Uh, you can check out our Facebook page. We post a lot of immunology memes, a lot of educational memes actually, where I try to where I try to get across some cool uh, immunology concepts through memes. Hopefully, it works. We've been getting a lot of uh, likes lately. <laughs> and that'll be it. Thanks a lot, guys. See you all later. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye.